Want exclusive access to bonus episodes, ad-free content, and extra materials? Then join us on patreon.com slash markvinette. Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. God, gold, and glory motivated European nations to explore and create colonies in North America, particularly in the strongly Catholic nations of Spain, Portugal, and France. Religious zeal motivated the rulers to convert the native peoples and sanctify Christian global dominance in the name of Jesus. Riding a growing wave of discontentment within the Catholic Church and its leadership, guided by the Pope, a German priest, theologian, author, and hymn writer by the name of Martin Luther lit a match of protest that gradually grew into a bonfire that changed the world. This former Augustinian friar is best known as the seminal figure in the Protestant Reformation and as the namesake of Lutheranism one of the largest branches of Protestantism. Join me as we unravel the truth, myth, legend, traditions, and mysteries surrounding this titan of history, which helps explain the relationship between religion, commerce, and conquest at the beginning of European exploration and colonization of the North American continent. Steve Guerra of the History of the Papacy podcast has graciously agreed to share with us his views on this remarkable period in history. I hope you enjoy this second half of his analysis. Indulgences was one of the really big problems Martin Luther had with the Church of Rome. An indulgence is a sort of a pass from the temporal punishment imposed as penance for a sin. For a person to be eligible to receive an indulgence, they must be absolved of their sin and then have a penance imposed upon them. The indulgence is outside of the normal sacrament of absolution and confession. Sacramental confession evolved over the years, but the essential elements go all the way back to the Gospels. Jesus gave Peter the authority to bind and loose sins. What precisely binding and loosening means or meant, and who has the authority to do so after Peter, was very much up for debate. In the early days, people would confess their sins in front of the entire congregation and then get their sins absolved. In confession, it's not the priest who is actually absolving the sins, it's God. And the priest is pa a pass-through or an intermediary. When a person was absolved of their sins, they were enjoined not to sin anymore. In the Gospels, Jesus would say, go and sin no more, and many of the stories where he forgave someone or somehow dealt with a sinful act. An idea developed that people should do some sort of penance to make a sign of an outward sign of contrition or sorriness for the sin that they did. The penance was up to the priest. And this penance was meant to help the person reflect on their sin, say pray more or fast for a certain amount of time. You can see how something pious like this could quickly be perceived as a punishment and become juridical or judicial. Confession and absolution traditionally didn't have anything to do with punishment. Penances could be very heavy, especially in the Middle Ages, and even though you were absolved of your sin, the penance would still be hanging around your head. And the penance wasn't just a piece of advice, it became an obligation and would be very bad not to do the required penance. 
That is where indulgences come into the game. The Pope, and to a much lesser degree bishops, could give a break on penance. If someone did a specific thing, they could get a waiver on their penance. They could even get some indulgences in the bank as a credit against future penances. In certain circumstances, indulgences were given for the punishment of sins that someone knowingly was going to commit in the future, such as in a war. Indulgences could be used to help out dead friends and relatives to knock a few years off their time in purgatory. But before we get into purgatory, let's talk about the economy first. Economy is going to be an issue when the church and church officials start selling indulgences. But in this instance, we are talking about something called oikonomia, which our modern word economy is derived from. In church talk, oikonomia is the authority bishops and priests use their judgment when dealing with people in an official church business, sometimes called dispensation, especially in the West. Again, this all comes back to Jesus giving the power to bind and loose to Peter. The economy is what authorizes a bishop, priest, or pope the authority to determine the appropriate penance for a confessing sinner. It is also the authority to give people a pass on fasting certain days or bending many of the other rules to fit individual circumstances. It's really all about leniency. Over time, for a wide variety of reasons, the church in the West became less lenient in many ways. It really may have derived as power centralized into the Pope. The Pope took powers from local bishops and priests who could afford to be more lenient. But now that decisions were being made from a central hub, things had to become more standardized. That's one theory, but there's many more. The church structure, though, became less about giving the priest discretion and more about legalistic or strict observance of rules and canons. All of this is to say the church believes it has the authority and power to have latitude in how it deals with people, their sin, and their religious lives. No matter if it's a priest, bishop, or pope, that's a part of the deal and that's a part of indulgences. This is where another one of Martin Luther's major complaints came into play. Purgatory. The idea of purgatory isn't directly mentioned in the Old Testament, the Gospels, or the letters. There are passages that allude to some sort of purification or purgation. Purgatory is a place where souls can go in the afterlife. Hell, or Hades, etc., is the place where souls that did not have salvation went. It was also reserved for people who were outside of the grace of the church upon their death. It could be a person who died excommunicated, weren't baptized, or otherwise unrepentant in their sins they went to a place where there was no chance of salvation. On the opposite end was heaven. If you've read the Paradiso or listened to the Great Cannonball's podcast on the Paradiso, heaven evolved to be a very complicated place in Roman Catholic theology. But in between heaven and hell was purgatory. This is the place where people who died inside of the good graces of the church but still had some degree of sin that they needed to be cleansed of before entering heaven went. Again, this isn't directly from the Bible, but was built upon and developed over the centuries through what the Roman Church calls holy tradition and through church councils. Luther didn't have a very high opinion on the very existence of purgatory, and he certainly didn't think a pope, priest, or bishop had any say on what happened to a soul in the afterlife anyway. 
What Luther was doing here was attacking the very core of papal power and authority. He wasn't just reforming around the edges here. He was going after the very heart of the institution. Naturally, there was going to be some pushback against these assertions or theses Luther made. That leads to another issue, that of the importance of church councils and tradition. To Luther, the Bible was everything. If a doctrine couldn't be found in the Bible, then it was no good. This is so-called sola scriptura, by scripture alone. Luther bashed church councils up and down. What Luther knew as much as any other, your next doctor of theology, was that church councils and tradition, based on writings outside of the gospel, went on long before the canon of scripture was locked into place. As a matter of fact, Luther tweaked the canon quite a bit, especially as far as the Old Testament went. Luther also worked on translating the Bible into the German vernacular. Translating into the vernacular was not this brand new thing that uh, Luther invented. For example, the Orthodox Church, not too far east of where Luther worked and operated, translated important documents such as the Gospels and other biblical books into the vernacular all the time. There was movements earlier in the West, too, to translate documents into the vernacular. But it wasn't completely unheard of in the West to translate the Gospels into the vernacular. Now the thing is, with making a Bible translation, is the translator has to make decisions on how to translate certain key words, phrases, and passages. This is a very delicate and complicated affair that takes a lot of knowledge of Latin, Greek, Hebrew. Not only all that, but the semantics of these languages at a very particular time in history. Bible translations were never taken lightly and usually was a very long-term project by a team of expert translators. When someone translates a book like the Bible, they're really saying that they are the authority to trust. Luther wasn't saying that there was no authority who could interpret the Bible. What he was saying was Luther himself was the proper authority. In the battle between Luther's reforming movement and the Roman Church, there are no clear right and wrong answers or good guys versus bad guys. Luther had some very important points to make. Luther also cut to the bone against the prerogatives the Church and the Popes had claimed for nearly a millennium and a half. Reform isn't an absolute, and reform movements can easily go far beyond simple marginal changes. This is what the Reformation of Luther was all about. Luther's pressing of papal and church power gave way to many different reform movements that were percolating around Europe at the time. Further reformations came about that Luther was vehemently opposed to. The reform movements of Zwingli and Calvin would sweep away a good portion of the area that had initially adopted Luther's reforms, violently at times. And the meanwhile, the Roman Catholic Church was spreading across the world throughout these discoveries of Spain and Portugal. Martin Luther and his Protestant supporters rallied against the moral decadence of the Church, the sale of forgiveness or indulgences, the ostentatious wealth of the papacy, and the corruption that was rife among the clergy. For the first time in 1500 years, the Catholic Church was in deep crisis. Next time, we continue our deep dive into the life and times of this 16th century German monk and reformer, 
whose efforts to alter the theology and practice of the Roman Catholic Church launched the Protestant Reformation, a form of Christianity that inspired early generations of men and women to cross a perilous ocean with their few belongings, hopes, dreams, and determination, and travel to the shores of North America. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying visuals, including maps, charts, timelines, photos, illustrations, and diagrams. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. <laughs>